Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Life Keys actually began 30 years ago uh, in an extraordinary personal encounter, which I won't be talking about today. But in that encounter, <clears throat> the, the thing God planted in our heart was a church as a restoring community. Wow. This is a church that has revival at its heart. What will come out of this congregation and out of this cluster? This, Helen and I feel extraordinarily privileged to have been invited to play a small part in the, the future of Numa Church and the great vision that it has to plant 200 churches out of four international hubs that carry a spiritual a spirit of revival for the discipling of cities and nations. Yeah. And if there's anything that people need in that revival, it's the rebuilding of their broken heart. Over, over years and over, over life, we develop within ourselves defective personal truths that rule the way we think yeah. and the way we feel. And it only requires one stupid thought to separate you from the kingdom of heaven. God drew his people out of Egypt. I I saw myself and I thought, how many people are up here? (laughs) Sneaking up behind me. He drew his people out of Egypt by the power of miracles. Drew them to the promised land and then their responsibility kicked in a responsibility for obedience. And one stupid thought trapped them for the next 40 years. We're grasshoppers. That thought locked them out of God's best purposes and plans. One stupid thought, one wrong, one defective personal truth. The reason I don't call them lies is because they don't feel like lies. They feel like they're true. Yeah, I'm I'm a grasshopper. Makes sense to me. But it's defective. It's not all. There's more to the story. And as we come to the issue of revival and the rebuilding of broken lives, um, it requires a cluster of ministries. The first is the presence and the power of the Spirit. The second is the application of the Word of God. The truth, which Jesus said, if you know it and you can experience it, it will set you free. But there 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 are facets and aspects to the truth that you can, you can stick at the shallow and never fully understand the implications of the truth. I'm going to unpack just one of them today. Then comes the healing of broken emotions because the way life works is it goes like this. The way you think and the, the things that dominate the spirit of your mind produce your emotions. And out of your thoughts and your emotions, you will live, you will yeah. do. And if you keep doing one day after a time, you build a life and a character and the plasticity of your brain begins to mold itself to that life. You become what you are one day of obedience at a time. And the key to the whole deal is you've got to be prepared to hear the truth and you've got to be prepared to let it do its work in you as you learn to respond and obey and become a new creation one day at a time. Life experiences damage people. Today we launched 
two courses for term one. We're going to do the Door of Hope. The Door of Hope is a uh, program for female survivors of sexual abuse. When I spoke in the revival nights uh, late last year, there were such a cluster of, of not only women, but there was a man who also responded. And uh, we said, okay, we, we have to run the Door of Hope first up because there are people who need it. Yeah. Uh, a 10-week course beginning on February the 7th, Tuesday nights, bringing women out of emotional isolation and addressing the life struggles they face as a result of the damage that can be done by sexual abuse. There is a power at work in sex that is present in no other facet of human society. And it's one of the reasons why sexual abuse is such an ongoing and challenging experience to deal with. But Jesus died to transform any life who was willing to receive it. And as a result, we'll be launching the Door of Hope. The second thing, the search for life. This is my thing. Now, Helen, Helen is at uh, the core of the Door of Hope. I'm at the core of search for life. Because as a high school teacher, I saw what happens when you strip away the materialistic framework that fills the mind of the way Australians think. We have been raised in a materialistic mindset. And by that, I don't mean everybody wants a bigger car and more money. Not that kind of materialism. But the kind of materialism that says the only thing that exists is, this, is the physical universe. And here we are, we're a physical being, and that's all there is. And as a result, where did the universe come from? It came from an explosion in nothing. That's science's explanation for the origin of the universe. An explosion in nothing. Well, if you add God to the process, then you can believe that. But the science would say you came from an explosion in nothing. You came from nowhere. There was no plan for the universe. There was no plan for the world. There, there was never a plan. It is simply an extraordinary accident that results in physics and chemistry. You are the end product of a mindless mechanistic universe. We raise young men and women in that environment from the cradle to the grave. A materialistic mindset. And it's a lie. But it develops personal truths about what life is about and what life is for. Now, we inject into that the gift of the, of the course we call Alpha, because it's a vital course. And Alpha injects into this nonsense that people are raised with in our country, you need to understand that a man called Jesus actually lived. Where did he come from? What did he say? What did he do? How did he live? How did he die? And then his resurrection from the dead. And it's a vital insight that every human being needs to encounter. I then want to deal with the flip side of that. Okay, I've, I've explained to you who Jesus is, but what about you? Do you understand who you are? Do you have any idea of the privilege involved in having been born a human being? And do you have any idea of the complexity that is involved because of what God has done? Yeah. Because the truth is this, the universe only exists because God called it into being. That's right. God has life in himself. He, he came from nowhere because he's never, there's never been any time when he hasn't been. God is eternal. He is without beginning and without end. He calls a physical universe into being. And in that physical universe, we find ourselves on a tiny little blue dot in the midst of a universe so vast, you, convert, you just can't get your head around it. And we are, in a sense, uh, living on Bethlehem. Just as Jesus, when he was born, was born into a little speck called Bethlehem. 
wasn't born onto the world stage in front of television cameras. He was hidden away in Bethlehem. God does things differently. And here in the middle of a vast universe, a little blue dot circles the sun and you and I find ourselves alive and on it. And the question is, what on earth are we doing here? And what does it mean to be human? It is a profound privilege to have been born a human being. But with that comes profound responsibility. But it is hard to exercise responsibility when you have no idea what you are. What has God done? God has created this extraordinary being. We are a new being. It's not, we're not the first thing God ever created. Heaven is filled with extraordinary beings. You can read about them in the Bible. But they're, they're not made out of atoms and molecules. Then he created a physical universe and on this little dot he created this, this extraordinary clay being, this body which is a cluster of, of 11 incredibly complex systems, all of them working together just to give a vehicle for what he then breathed into that body, a spirit. A human being is not just a body. A human being is a body infused with a spirit, the life of God himself inside a clay vessel. And these two vessels of both flesh and spirit have been melded into one and Australians struggle with things they feel, have no idea what they feel, why they feel it. Where to, what's the solution to the cries and the needs in my heart? What's the cause and, and the cure of my brilliance and my brokenness? Human beings are brilliant on one hand and thoroughly broken on the other. And the question is, well, how does this work? Well, God, why am I here? And, and Lord, what do you want to do with me? How does Jesus do something with the person that I am. How do you live well when you don't understand yourself? So my flip, my, the, the work I want to do in Search for Life is to help you understand a theology of what it means to be a human being and what it means to, to be able to answer the question, what am I because I'm created in God's image and what happened to me in the fall and what does Jesus do with those two truths? How does Jesus fit into the struggle of human life? It's an important and vital insight everybody needs to understand. When people don't understand, they struggle, even in the midst of their brilliance. I think of uh, one of Australia's best tennis players. I don't mention his name because some of you are so young, you, you don't even know who he is, but <laughs> I'm old enough to have watched him win, win Wimbledon back in 1987, Pat Cash. <clears throat> Pat Cash is a brilliant, iconic Australian sportsman, huge handsome, gifted sportsman, winning the world and women in every port and bringing children into the world, never marrying their mothers. But then towards the, the, the thing about life is that when you're young, you, you haven't lived long enough to see the consequences of the personal truths that you're building your life on. And he's building his life on defective personal truths and has no idea who he really is as a human being, what he feels and why he feels it. But now as he gets older, he begins to find himself struggling with emotions he doesn't understand. And when he wrote his book, years after his tennis career was written, was finished, he said, what nobody knew behind the scenes was I lived with perpetual fear. I wanted people to love me. He developed a, a, a defective truth, which we deal with in the search for life. The defective truth that I can never like myself unless you do. 
I can never like myself unless I'm performing well enough to be able to say, I'm a good man, I'm a good woman, I'm the right kind of person, I deserve to be loved because look at me. He built his life on that. But he said that, that resulted in a, in a fear. I feared going out on that tennis court because I might lose. And if I lose, what will people think of me? What will they say about me? And he said, the fear was so profound, the only way I knew to control it was by doing drugs. And that's why I did drugs. I'm trying to medicate my fear. And he said, there came moments where I wanted to commit suicide. And the only reason I didn't commit suicide was because I had children. I didn't want to leave them fatherless. Well, Pat, that's not a satisfactory reason for doing life. You needed help. You needed insight. You struggled the best you knew how with the with the defective truths you were living with, you needed Jesus. And you, uh, the problem is you could have told him about it. He wouldn't have known where to rub the ointment in his soul because he didn't understand who he was. I think of a, a, a later sportsman, Tiger Woods, number one golfer in the world. And how did he get there? He got there by personal discipline. Just a totally personally disciplined life to produce the best golf swing you could ever imagine. Won millions of dollars, probably billions if you add it all up. But then you suddenly find him on the news with his wife chasing him out of the house, smashing the window of his car with a golf club. Because while he's got capacity to produce this brilliant swing by self-discipline, he can't manage his sex life. And as a result, he's now destroyed his wife, he's he's destroyed his family, he's destroyed his integrity in the face of the whole world because he can't manage his sex life. How can you be this brilliant and this silly at the same time? That's, human, that's what it means to be a broken human being. I think of Whitney Houston. She was probably my favourite of all of the singing stars. I was in love with Whitney Houston. I've never really told Helen about this. but <laughs> I just thought Whitney was so wonderful. And then you turn on your TV one day to find that Whitney's drowned in a bath because of an overdose, overdose of drugs. She's, she's, she's done drugs to the point where she's passed out in the bath and she's drowned. And it's not until her funeral that you hear Kevin Costner, who was a close friend to Whitney, explaining the problem. You see, Kevin Costner and Whitney both grew up in Baptist churches, and so they they had a very common background, and they knew a lot about each other's religious background. But he said the challenge with Whitney was she never felt like she was good enough. What? Beautiful, talented, totally brilliant, but never felt good enough. That nagging sense of shame that made no sense whatsoever, that drove that woman to drugs and eventually those drugs took her life in a bath. This is the human story. The reality is that God has a better plan than that for human beings. The Bible says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed. It's not hard to get to heaven. You've just got to be willing to go. Whoever believes would not perish. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is, he's, he's ang- the, the, the pain of being a father and watching your children destroy yourself. <laughs> Anyone who's had kids has watched, had those moments. I watched my, the pain in my mother's face when the police came to arrest me for siphoning petrol out of a policeman's car. <laughs> I saw the pain in my mother's face and thought, this woman doesn't deserve this. I didn't steal petrol because there's something wrong with my mum and dad. Something wrong with Al. That's the problem. The, the reality is the Bible says, 
God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, why don't we all go? Why don't everyone just flock? Oh, Jesus died. Wonderful. Let's all flock to God and have eternal life. But that's not how it happens. That's not what happens. The reality is that there's this dreadful thing goes on in the hearts of people. Um, they spend most of their energies trying to make sure it never happens. Trying to make sure they never encounter God. Trying to make sure that no one ever gets the, that religious stuff near them. And you've got to ask yourself, why is that? When we, know, we need it so badly and God is so willing. And one of the reasons, just one, I'm going to deal with one of them. The fear of a close encounter with God. The fear. Um, don't let God get too close to me because it won't work out well if that happens. It makes people nervous. Now, when God's been working in a person's life, it's amazing when you sit next to someone, God's been working in their life, they start talking, you begin to share Jesus and they're just ready. It's wonderful. But you want to play golf with people and just start talking about Jesus. It's amazing watching the oof, up go the shutters. I remember it in staff rooms at school. Everyone's sitting in the staff room having fun, talking with each other. Whoa, whoa, good on you, mate. Someone puts Jesus into the conversation. The temperature drops 20 degrees, 20 degrees. Suddenly people get nervous, got to get up and go do something else. Oh, Jesus, I'm out of here. What is it about Jesus that makes people that nervous? What's wrong with you? I remember one woman ringing me one day and saying, my sister is dying. She's got less than 24 hours to live. Would you go visit her in hospital? Give her one last chance. I said, sure. Jumped in my car, drove down to the local hospital, went to the nurse's station and said, I'm here to see so-and-so. The nurse says, wait here, I'll let her know you're here. The nurse disappeared, came back a few minutes later and said, the lady wants to know, will you come back tomorrow? You don't have tomorrow, sweetheart. What is it about God that would have a, a dying woman on the edge of eternity saying, let's delay that conversation one more day? What's that about? You see, I don't have to just mention other people's stories because I've got my own. I know what it feels like to experience that deep nervousness about being drawn near to God. Because, see, I grew up in an environment where I went to church and I loved it. I, I don't remember a time when I didn't read the Bible and didn't believe it. But I wasn't living it. I was a thief, and, um, stole my lunch, stole petrol, turn up and swing in the choir every Thursday night and get ready for Sunday. Happily go to church every Sunday. Then one Sunday I go to church and someone mentions the judgment to come and hell. And the fear of God touched my life. And for the next four days I tried to figure out how Christian I was prepared to be in order to not go to hell. <laughs> and on the fourth day God spoke to me. It's clear as a bell. I got right near the front door and God spoke in here and said to me, I want you to be a minister. Well, good Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth invites me onto his ministry team. Al, I've had a look around. I, I invite you. Well, I did not dance and say, woohoo, woohoo. I burst into tears. Oh, no. Shoot me now. I just said, oh, God, 19 years old and I'm dead already. I drove around to see Helen. I took her out in the backyard. I said, I think God wants me to be a minister. She cried. She didn't want to marry a minister. <laughs> I'm not here because this was my natural bent. When, when God kind of invited me, I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever heard in my life. I was, nearly de I was depressed. Shoot me now. 
And you've got to ask yourself, what is it about God that makes a 19-year-old Australian nervous about that? Why are you excited now? Well, I can tell you I wasn't excited. I was, I was distressed. And I think the mystery is even more, more puzzling. Why do people behave this way? When you consider why we're here. Why do we even exist? Why does the universe exist? Why does planet Earth exist? Why have you been given the privilege of life? What is the point? And Jesus said, if you want to understand what's in God's mind as he does all of this, when you pray, say this, our Father which art in heaven. God is a father. He's having a family. He called Adam the son of God. Well, what's the point? What's God want from me then? What's he after? Cheap labor or something, you know? Let's make a whole bunch of kids and we'll get all the kids to do the work. How many people here are parents? Put your hand up if you're a parent. Put your hand down. How many people did that on purpose? Yeah, hands are slower. They're trying to figure, did we do that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can have kids without trying. I think... I think we intended at least one of our children. <laughs> Be fooling around, suddenly your children. Put your hand up if you did it on purpose. You deliberately had children. Yeah, less hands now. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Why'd you do that? Why on earth did you do that? Did nobody explain to you? Did no one tell you how expensive this would be? I could be driving a Maserati and have a holiday home in Tahiti, but I had children. You used to be able to sleep, now you've got kids. <laughs> you used to be able to go home and buy McDonald's, but now you've got kids, you've got to make it yourself. You used to have money and time and all that. Did no one explain to you how expensive it would be? Nobody has children to get jobs done. Flip, kids don't do jobs, they make jobs. <laughs> Then why did you do it? Why did you have children? Because you've got to ask, when God uses the word father and gives us the privilege of being fathers and mothers, what, it, what, what was in your thoughts and in your mind? Yeah. See, God didn't create human beings because he was empty. He didn't create human beings because he was lonely. God is so thrilled with the privilege of his eternal yeah. being. Yeah. He's been prepared to pay an extraordinary price yeah. to share the privilege of being beyond himself. Yeah. God is moved to give you the experience of being like I've been moved to have four children and now I've got 12 grandchildren. Why'd you do it, Al? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Yeah. That little circle of expanded intimacy and love is the reason you pay the price. It's why churches build buildings and spend money to win people. It's nothing in it for you. Ah, the church is only after your money. What for? Well, just get more people to help people. Because of the circuit, the joy of expanded community. That's why it's done and that's what's in the heart of God. God did not create human beings to get cheap labour. He didn't create it to get jobs done, to have to yeah. do all this worship himself if we don't get some people on the job. 
He did it to give you the privilege of being. Your job description for existence is to know him. My kids, what's your job? Just know me as your dad and let me love you and and I hope that you love me in return and we'll create a a circle of joy and of love and kind. That's the point of it all. Love is the whole point. That's what's in the heart of God. And you've got to ask yourself, well, if that's the truth, Al, if that's all God has on his mind, an expanded circle of being in an increasing circle of love and kindness and joy and relationship, and my key job description is to know him and enjoy him forever, how come it's so hard to do? How come people resist it all the time? And the answer is simply this. It was never this way. It was never always this way. Something has happened to us. Something has happened in the human heart. Something devastating has happened inside every human being. And it needs to be understood. Because if you don't understand it, you'll never know where to rub the ointment. By the grace of God. It wasn't always this way. If you go back to the very beginning, there's only two chapters in the Bible that give us an insight into God's thinking and relationship with people before sin entered the world. Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2. And the Bible simply sums it this way. God would visit them in the cool of the day, in the breeze of the day. He'd come in the breeze and and there they would hang out together. Uh, There wasn't an accounting process. How how many bananas have you done this week? Where where are the strawberries I've asked you to do? It was just, come on, let's talk. Understand me, let's enjoy each other. But there came a day when a creep came slithering into that garden. There was a creep. We have an enemy. There is a spirit whose delight is to kill, to steal, and destroy. Jesus told us that. We have to understand we're involved in a war for our destiny. Say, well, why didn't God just remove me? Because God knows what he's doing. Life is probationary. You're about to find out whether you have any heart for eternity. He'll visit you. The question is, how will you respond? And that creep came slithering into that garden, dragging with him the chains of our future bondage. And he had one thing in his mind, and that was to poison my thought life as to the nature and purpose of my heavenly father, of my father. Hath God said, you shall not eat from any of these trees, you miserable attitude. That's not what he said. He said, we could eat of all of these trees, but there's one, one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is the only one who is competent to be able to describe what is good and what is evil. Because you and I have a time frame so small, we can think something's good, but if you track with it for a little while, you discover it was poison. You can think something was poison and just track with it for a little while. Say, oh, no, that wasn't. No, I got that wrong. That was actually, it was a blessing. God is the only one who knows how to describe long-term what's good and evil. He said, leave that to me. All I'm asking of you is this, trust me and obey. Just trust me and obey. And in came that miserable creep to sow a thought. You can't trust him. He's not for you. He's your problem. Uh, He's a limiter. He's trying to keep life from you. You know, the only reason he said that was because he knows if ever you get a hold of that that tree, if ever ever you start that process, you'll be be like God himself. He doesn't want like you like him. He doesn't want you. Well, that's actually... Absolutely yeah. untrue. God's greatest hope is we become more and more like him. Yeah. Just like yeah. I hope my kids and my grandkids love the things I love and believe the things I believe yeah. and will follow Jesus too. Yeah. No, he says, no, you, 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 he, he's a problem. 
And the power of deception, the power of one stupid thought, the power of one defective idea yeah. is that it can keep you from the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And that poisoned my mother's heart. And in an act of treachery, yeah. she made a decision to not trust her father and to break his word. And in a moment of time, suddenly something collapsed in her heart. The Bible said suddenly she and my father knew that they were naked. Well, hang on, sweetheart, you were naked yesterday. Oh, yeah, but I didn't feel naked. Wow. Uh, what do you mean you're naked? You never had any clothes. No, no, but today I feel inadequate. Suddenly I feel, oh, there's something wrong with me. There's something inadequate about me. What do you mean? You're the glory of God. You're made in his image. They're destined. No, 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 you don't understand. I, I'm, 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 I'm naked. I'm, yeah. I'm vulnerable. I'm exposed. There was the beginning of our broken hearts in that very spot. And then the Bible says they heard the sound of God coming into the garden. The Father. Oh, yesterday, the greatest delight in my life was the sound of the Father coming into the garden. Oh, Dad's coming. Let's show him the strawberries. Hey, Dad, show Dad the strawberries. Look at these strawberries, Dad. Oh, move the elephants further south. But now intuitively they sense there's something, something wrong about this visit. There's something about this visit that's, that seems, feels uncomfortable because what they had not understood was that while the creator of the heavens and the earth was their father, he was also the guardian of everything that is holy and pure and yeah. true. He was the judge of the heavens and the earth and suddenly one who had been their father and that's all they'd ever seen to that moment, suddenly he took on a role that they were unfamiliar with and it frightened their hearts. The Bible says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I hid myself because I was afraid. What were you afraid of? Intuitively, they understood something had happened. Intuitively, they understood that what yesterday had been a bedroom and a dining room and a lounge room had suddenly become a courtroom. Suddenly, the garden, which was their delight and their experience of simply rejoicing and delighting in being in the presence of the Father, suddenly they were in a courtroom. And they'd never been to Bible college, they'd never read a book on the character of God. This is intuitive, it's emotional. And it resonates in every single broken heart. It's part of the challenge of our brokenness. It flows out of that dreadful moment in the fall. And the reality is simply this. The impact of sin was suddenly to demand that my father took on a responsibility he does not delight in. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible says his great longing is that mercy would triumph over judgment. Yeah. He would prefer to be your father, but suddenly he has to take on a second role. The role of the judges of the heaven and the earth. And the funny thing about a courtroom is it doesn't feel so great. And I can tell you from experience, because I got arrested for stealing petrol and I ended up on the, uh, in the magistrate's court at Kew, charged with larceny of petrol. And in that courtroom, there was one called the prosecutor, there was a person called me by me. I was the accused. And then sitting up on that bench was a judge and it was his responsibility to kind of deal with this moment. Now, this moment was not about, Al, are you happy? Is everybody happy? No, he wasn't there for that. 
His role was the issue of crime and punishment. His role was guilt and innocence, right and wrong, truth and error. It was the issue of law. And as I stood there that day, I felt in that courtroom what every individual feels tremors of from back in that garden. It's part of the human journey. And there, in that courtroom, (laughs) thankfully I ended up with a good behaviour bond and made a decision that my life of crime should come to an immediate end. That's where I felt naked. I felt inadequate, insecure and exposed. I felt the pain of shame, of fear. I felt expelled. All of the garden experiences. Now you say, oh, that doesn't apply to me because I'm a Christian and as a result, you know, I know that Jesus died on the cross for me and I'm glad you do. But here's the danger and that is that this is intuitive. And some of these emotions can hang on long into your Christianity. It's why religion flourishes so easily. Because when there is in your heart an intuitive feeling that God is, yes, he's your father. And yes, he loves me. And Jesus died, but he's also my judge. And boy, is he hard to please because he knows everything about my life. And he's so blooming perfect. And that's the person you live with. A feeling that your relationship with God is an experience of relating to a father judge. It's a little bit like trying to follow as a new creation, but knowing uh, in the back pocket he has cards like an Olympic high jump judge. And you serve, you know, oh Lord, I'm serving here. Look, I'm serving. I'm doing a good thing. How did I do, Lord? And he pulls a ticket out of the back, 4.6. 4.6, I was really good serving. Yeah, but you should have seen Jesus. He was a 10. You're about a 4.6. Oh, blow. Oh, Lord, I'm giving. Lord, to see me, I'm giving. I'm, I'm giving. I'm giving. Is it good? Good. He pulls a card out back, 3.9. 3.9. Oh, yeah, Jesus was a 10, but you're about a 3.9. I mean, try harder, mate. Try harder. Go back, do it again. Repeat. Improve. Climb that ladder, buddy. And even in the life of Christians, this intuitive feeling that somehow God is not just my father, he is also my judge, has the capacity to hang on. And I might never have unpicked this in my own heart had it not been for an experience I had some years ago with one of my sons. Came home from being away with Helen and my boy said to me, Dad, I think I'm going to get kicked out of school. And I said, why would that be, son? And he said, oh, Dad, a boy brought a bottle to school and four of us went behind the shelter shed and we all had a swig. I said, we're not talking about a milk bottle, are we, son? No, Dad, not talking about a milk bottle. Well, I wasn't particularly shocked. Um, sin flows from parents to their children. And Helen has been such a sinful woman. <laughs> I, I knew it was going to catch up with the kids sooner or later. So I said to him, well, it's okay, son. Okay, all right, I get it. People make mistakes. We'll go down to the school. We'll sort it out. Now, Helen was on the school board. I was one of the founding pastors. And when we got in the room with these, these are all our friends. And as soon as we began to start, well, let's sort it out with the boys. They said, Alan, your boy's going to be expelled. And I said, hold the phone. He's been in the school for 10 years. He's the first time he makes a mistake. You expel these kids for this one action, you can destroy their lives. This could, be, this, this could damage them forever. This, may be, this could be irretrievable. 
Um, we need, obviously there needs to be discipline, they need to be suspended or some kind of discipline. They said, no, no, you don't understand. And they brought out a, a copy of the school rules. And the school rules said, anyone bringing, a student bringing alcohol onto the property will be expelled. See, it's in the rules. They said, you mean the, you, you're going to expel them just because it's in the rules? Did anyone think that this might not be a really good rule or a smart rule? No, no, it's the, it's a, it's the rules. And when I recognised all these kids are going to be expelled because it's a, a rule, I was so angry. I got up and said to Helen, well, we must leave these anointed and holy people lest we poison them with our presence. And <laughs> as I was walking, I was walked off that school property. That I, I was so angry, but I couldn't explain why I was angry until a couple of days later, I was driving around my car and I started to make up a speech. Um, I do it when I'm mowing the lawn sometimes as well. So as I'm driving along, I start to make up a speech. And I said, you know what's wrong with you, school board? <laughs> Ask me, I can tell you. I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You're nothing but a bunch of, 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 of judges. Finally, I've got to say, you're nothing but a bunch of judges. That's all you do. You just care about the law, crime and punishment. Show me the rule book. Show me the law. Let's put the law into effect. Execute the kids. But you know what I think? Ha, stick this up your nose with a rubber hose. I don't even care what the boys have done. And do you know what I don't care, why I don't care? I don't care what my son has done because I'm his father. Yeah. And I don't care about the law. I care about his destiny and I care about his future. And the moment I said that, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he simply said, that's how I feel about you. Wow. Wow. And in a moment of time, I realized the gospel in a way I had never understood it before. I had been living with, in faith and living in the knowledge that Jesus was my saviour, but I'm saved to have a relationship with a father judge and, and I know he's perfect and I'm trying hard and I really believe Jesus is enough, but that feeling of often just not cutting it and being there and pleasing him, well, how will I ever please you? You're so blooming perfect. And suddenly I realised what God had done. See, before the creation... God knew that there, our sin would demand his role as both father and judge, but he also had a plan to separate these two things again because his preferred role is not the role of judge, it's the role of father. And they had planned a way to separate the two roles. And there as Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, he came to that night in the Garden of Gethsemane where he offered his perfect life to his father that his father might once and for all yeah. deal with yeah. judgment and never have to repeat it again. And as they took Jesus Christ away, his father mounted the judgment seat in heaven and as Christ was crucified, on that cross, his father sat in judgment once and for all. And the wonder of the cross are the final words, it is finished. And in heaven, God the Father 
could take off the judge's robes, having fulfilled his responsibility, wrap it up and say, me too. Henceforth, all judgment is given into the hands of the son. I'm not, I won't sit on this anymore. I'm not the judge anymore. Jesus can be the judge. The Bible simply says this. He has yielded through Christ the finished work of the cross. He pulled apart. He fulfilled his responsibility. He has returned to his prior and his preferred role. Listen to what the Bible has to say. The Bible says mercy triumphs over judgment. The Bible says this, as a father has compassion on his children. Had, this, had my boy never gone through this experience, I might be living with this faulty personal truth to this day. That moment, I would have paid for it afterwards. I thought, oh, good on that was brilliant. I thought it was a disaster at first till I'd lived through it. Said, oh God, I might have never seen this. It was the anguish I had for my son that allowed me to see the heart of a father and how different it is from the role of a judge. Now, let me say this. The school board were not wrong. Somebody did have that responsibility. It wasn't me. My responsibility was not to be his judge. My responsibility was his father. And I thank God he did get expelled and he went out. He left, went to a different school, but came back the year after and picked up his axe head and is finishing and doing just so well. Listen to what the Bible says. For as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. He said to my soul, that's how I feel about you. From that day, I said, thank you. Thank you. We sang about it before. Perfect peace. The peace of God. To know he's, he's not a high, gun, high jump judge. I, I have a unique relationship with every one of my children. I don't measure them up against each other. I just have a, a life, a unique life with every single one of them. God doesn't love all of his children the same. He loves them uniquely. He loves every individual life uniquely. He's not measuring you against anything. The Bible says he came and preached peace to those who were far away. Maybe you've been living like the devil. I don't know what brought you to church today. I don't know where you are. You may have been far away. You're one of those people that don't want to hear about it. Push them away. Don't, don't have that conversation with me. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like this kind of stuff. I don't, never feel good when you, people talk. I feel nervous. Well, the, this is your day. Yeah. I'm explaining to you why that is. Now, don't perish because you've got a defective personal truth. Don't perish. Just realize, you know, Al, that's me. I, I feel that way. Well, let me tell you this. It's a defective personal truth. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. God is not your father judge. He judged sin in Jesus. He will be your father if only you will allow him to be so. And today I've got to tell you, it's safe to come home. He's not waiting there with a stick to beat you up and yeah. confront you with all the things you've done. He'll, he'll run to you and he'll put the robe of righteousness around your shoulders. All you've got to do is come. Yeah. But listen to what the Bible says. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far away and to you who were near. This room is filled with people who are near. You know who Jesus is, many of you, most of you. You know what he's done. You sing about it and you believe it. But our troubled hearts sometimes resonate with insecurity. We feel a little bit naked, a little bit undone, a little bit insecure. You need to know something. He's come to speak peace. It's okay. I understand. You're not defective. It's just what it means to be human. Let me breathe on you. Let me give you one experience after another to increase your confidence. Because I'm for you. I'm not against you. He's come to bring peace to those who are near. Because the Bible says, through him, through Jesus, we all have access to the Father by one spirit. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.